Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, welcome back. This is our second segment of the Going Deep Deeper series. And uh, this is part two of our interview with Tim Mahoney, who is an award-winning filmmaker and producer, director and author, and has done some really exciting documentaries. Uh, We highlighted last week his first documentary on patterns of evidence, The Exodus. And this week, we're going to be talking about uh, some of that, as well as a second documentary on patterns of evidence, the Red Sea, part one and two. And we're going to be talking about evidences for the uh, exodus from Egypt, archaeological evidences. So um, before we get started, let me describe to you about his uh, second documentary on the Red Sea Miracle. It's a two-part film series examining the journey to the crossing location, looking at two competing views of the Red Sea miracle. One he calls the Egyptian approach, which looks near Egypt, and the other he calls the Hebrew approach, which looks far from Egypt at the Gulf of Aqaba, where divers have been searching for the remains of Pharaoh's army on the seafloor. The investigation raises giant questions about the real location for the crossing of the Red Sea and the implications on your view of God based on these two different approaches. So the answers to these questions point to one of two very different realities uh, in the story. So, uh, Tim, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Oh, it's great to be on the program again, and I'm, I'm glad to be uh, talking about the films. Well, um, you know, since watching the documentary, I've noticed that most Bible maps in the back of my Bibles and online, most of them show this, what you call the Egyptian approach to the wilderness crossing. And um, so I want us to understand a little bit better um these two different approaches. And um, so can you explain it a little bit farther for us? Right. One of the things that I have done is I've tried to help uh, condense information so that, you know, I have to understand it myself Uh, until I figure it out myself. And what I was seeing was that there appeared to be an approach that was was very influenced by Egypt and by Egyptology. And I call that approach the Egyptian approach. And that is that the Exodus events happened um, very close to Egypt, that the Israelites crossed a body of water right next to Egypt or on the boundary lakes of Egypt, and that all these events uh, have uh, also connections to Egyptian words. And so that's one, one idea. Uh, for example, there's the word in Hebrew, Yam Suf, and that was the name that Moses used to describe the sea that was crossed. Uh, Yam meaning sea, but Suf, the question is, what does Suf mean? 
And what the Egyptian approach would say is that Suf means reeds, that it is the sea of reeds, uh, or that there's reeds involved. And so that's the reason why a lot of scholars in the last number of years have have moved the thinking of the sea crossing to those border lakes. And the other group is I call Hebrew. And those are looking at the Hebrew word and they're saying, wait a minute, Yam Suf, uh, Suf does not mean read. It means end or boundary. And it was used to describe Yam Suf is, is used as the name for the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the right arm of the Red Sea that comes up to Elat in Israel. It's used to describe the boundary. When Moses talks about the boundary of the nation of, or the promised land, it, the southern boundary is this location called Yam Suf, which is connected to the Gulf of Aqaba. So is it the Sea of Reeds or is it the Sea of Boundary? Is it the Gulf of Aqaba? So are we looking at lakes or are we looking at us, you know, the sea? And along with that then comes different views as to how the water was parted. So the, the bottom line here is that the Egyptian approach and the Sea of Reeds is a much, much smaller miracle because the water levels are so much lower. Whereas the Hebrew approach over at the Gulf of Aqaba, that's a very deep body of water. And so that's more in keeping with how the Bible describes this major uh, stopping of the water and a wall of water on both sides of the Israelites as they walked across and then it being deep enough to drown the Egyptian army. And so it's a, it's a matter of how big is the miracle these two locations. So my question to you is why do most people assume this Egyptian approach with the smaller miracle? Is there more evidence pointing towards that one? I think that um, the, the idea of natural, in other words, that God works within the laws of nature, a lot of people uh, that look at this as a, because it says the age was the wind. Uh, uh, some interpret, even the things that happened at the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, there are some that believe it happened at the tip of the Gulf further up north at, a, at another body of water where the wind was blowing uh, for a long time, you know, for several hours. And, and then over the time, that would call what's called wind set down. It pushes the water back. So what you end up with is a piece of dry land. Water's four miles, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a long stretch, but the challenge that people in Hebrew would point out, it says that there were walls of water on each, both sides of them. And if you do a wooden set down, then it, you don't see that wall of water. It's so far off that it just hardly looks like anything. And so that's the, that's the challenge that people are suggesting. So the, what the question then goes back to why are, have people been attracted to this idea is that, you know, in the 1800s, when uh, Darwinism came into play and people were looking for naturalistic explanations for creation and for a number of things, there, there were people that were trying to take the supernatural out of the equation and to try to find out, well, how could this have happened in a more naturalistic way? But in the defense of people on the Egyptian side that are believers, they would say that, wait a minute, it's the timing 
that God caused the wind to blow at just the right time. And that's the miracle. The miracle is in the timing of God's provision, which is very you know, true that God miraculous timing for when it rains or when it you know doesn't rain or whatever there can be you know uh god acting in nature which is which can happen and so that's where these two film the, these these well i made two films about it because there was so much to talk about red sea miracle one and two cover these two different viewpoints and the big question then is what does that say about the miracle well um you know, when I was watching it, I kept asking myself, well, could the water levels of those Egyptian lakes have been higher back 3,000 years ago? Um, you know, that it is could be an extension of the, the Red Sea and the, the Suez Canal there, the Suez. Uh, could it have been deeper then? Uh, that's a great question. And I'm trying to remember, uh, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for you, but uh, I've been told by one scholar that yes, the water was was deeper at that time. And often, what happens is that uh, the water is coming from um, it's it's coming because it's being filled up, you know, from the Nile. And there's there's different places, uh, and it's an uh, it's an area where there's many different lakes. So we don't know. There's different theories as to which lake happened, but you should also know that the Nile Delta has been has been going off out into the Mediterranean Sea too. So some of the places that exist don't exist the way they were <laughs> back then, and the Nile keeps twisting and turning, and it's changing its course. And certain areas uh, where the Nile was, uh, the Nile moved, and so uh, a lot of what was there. Uh, isn't there anymore. And, uh, and, and so there's different, possibly even a much uh, more precipitation and more of a green greenness to the area. Uh, that's another question about the, you know, exodus out of Egypt. Was the Sinai uh, more lush than it was mm -hmm. today? Because that was 3,500 years ago. And it's very possible that, that the, uh, uh, the environment has changed. Well, you've certainly uh, done your share of research on this, so I'm I'm really interested to know uh, some more detail here. Other than the the weakness of the Egyptian theory is that the the water levels, as we understand them, just are not high enough to produce these walls of water on two sides, and then to drown the Egyptian army. Um, you, you can you can show a wind and and creating parting the water so it could have walked across, but the rest of the story it's really really hard to recreate that right lower think, levels. Yes, what you're referring to too, we showed in the film is that in order to have water parting with wind set down, it can't be very deep. It has to be you know in that two to four feet, uh, depending upon how how much wind does it take. To blow wind, to blow water, and how much time does it take to blow that water? Now, when the water comes back, it'll be a taller, you know, it'll be more like six feet or eight feet. It'll be like a surge coming back. So the the idea here is that that even though it might have been a shallow, you know, water, that people in their defense for the Egyptian approach think that this water, when it comes back, would actually be scary. It would be like. Uh, eight to 10 feet, you know, you, and if you're only, let's say six feet tall, you don't need um, more than 
let's say six and a half feet of water to drown in if you don't know how to swim or if you're tumbling in in the current and everything. So that's what they're saying. But um, I think the some people have said, well, the miracle is not could the water part, but how did that many Egyptians drown in that shallow water? I've heard that joke a few times. And so th that's the reason why we've been looking at it, because there are many, many scholars that that support this near Egypt approach. And uh, so we're just raising the question and, and saying, well, if you look at this pattern of evidence and you, you hit past what has happened historically, because every Bible shows crossings real near Egypt, the Sea of Reeds. So you've been, you know, in a sense, had that indoctrination of, uh, in the back of every Bible, you see where the Israelites, you know, cross this Red Sea next to Egypt or the Bitter Lakes or one of these lakes, and then they go down to the traditional Mount Sinai. And, um, but there are other names and other connections that we see in the Hebrew approach that they're saying there needs to be considerations here. And, but if you have maybe a hundred years of people naming things close to Egypt and they've built a case and they've taught that for years, that's basically a, a, a tradition that's been passed on to many, many people. And so as we've gone on these films and said, well, what's, well, are there other ways to look at this that might find us uh, answers that are more satisfying? Well, the Yam Suf, you already uh, mentioned that, but uh, Yam Suf, which can be translated either Sea of Reeds or it's been translated as the Red Sea. You said it literally means the end uh, sea, the word, or could be. Um, but Yam Suf, does that appear anywhere else in the Bible? Uh, Yam Suf appears, yes. It, it appears, uh, I believe, when uh, Hezekiah, and uh, I think it was Hezekiah and Solomon, they had a fleet of ships on, on Yam Suf. So there are other, other biblical references to Yam Suf. Uh, once again, it's when the, Moses is uh, writing the boundary of Israel. So my question has been, if Moses is referencing that name and uh, in the same account that he's describing not too long after the sea crossing and he's using Yamsu for the sea crossing and then he's using Yamsu for the boundary does he mean um, anything different because we know the boundary of Israel is not one of these lakes next to Egypt we know oh. we say, we see it as the Gulf of Aqaba which is an arm of the Red Sea Mm -hmm. And it's over on the east side of the Sinai Desert. So that, that's where Solomon would have had his ships, correct? Correct, yes. And so the, um, the, what some people have said, oh, there's many Yamsus. And uh, that's a clever uh, <laughs> idea. But I said, well, isn't the point of giving something a name so you know where it is? You know, I mean, to name something. Is, is this the sea of the end? It is is Aqaba that sea. And so that's and when people see the films, they're going to be able to see the argument and they can do more research for themselves. What I was trying to point out was that I could film multiple scholars and they were giving me these different positions. So in our films, what we try to do is is to categorize things so that people can better understand the basic arguments that are being made. And then you measure them for a pattern. And you're, you know, and you're looking to see, does this satisfy a pattern that we can see that the scripture is, is the, the account is defining or describing? And we just say, well, what, which one matches the pattern the best? 
Well, in addition to the location of Yam Suf, there are other locations that are mentioned in the Exodus story. So it says that they they leave Ramses there at Sukkot. They go to Etham. It mentions a Migdal and Baal Siphon and Pai Hahirot, however you pronounce that. Um, and so, you know, we'll see those locations mapped out on our Bible maps and the route that they took. And then there's a Rephidim that I think has 12 springs. All these places in the, the story. Um, can you find, can you map those locations to a farther away Red Sea exodus? They, they seem to be closer there to the Egyptian lakes. Correct. Correct. Uh, yes. So what, what has happened is, is that, uh, the names for, uh, let's say Migdal, which means fort, uh, uh, that, uh, these words, uh, Piha Hero, their, their coordinates to tell you where the sea crossing happened. And in both cases, the Egyptian approach has used uh, Egyptian names and they're using them to say, I can find these terms here near Egypt and they are matching the biblical text. And uh, the Hebrew approach is are saying, no, Sukkoth means, you know, I think it means campsite. Uh, so uh, they're saying that <clears throat> the Sea of Yam Suf is in a wilderness and it's not right next to Egypt. It's the way of the wilderness of Yam Suf is a road that crosses the Sinai. And they're saying that this is the direction that they're heading and that they stop at this place called Etham. I think it's a, it's a flat area. And there's identifications where that campsite might be. So what ends up happening is we have educated guesses by biblical geographers um, on different camps. And they're going to say, this is my uh, Etham or Etham. Um, and this is my uh, Pihahiroth. I believe that the Hebrew term for uh, Hiroth, uh, Pihahiroth means mouth of the cave. And some now in the Egyptian approach would say, say it means mouth of the canal, but it's an opening. And so that uh, people like Professor Hoffmeyer will say that it's, it's right next to canals and that they were, they were in that area. And others will say, no, there's a, there's a gorge that opens up that's like a you know, cave opening. Or a, or, and it's the mouth of this gorge where they're going into the Wadi Watir down to Nuiba. And so as we look at the different presentations... I liken it a little bit to uh, motor trends <laughs> where your people have vehicles, right? And you're looking at the new latest models and you're looking at these different models and you're comparing the performance of those. Well, we, we have the same thing with these ideas that people have, have taken and said, well, which ones make the most sense? And so the Hebrew approach is, uh, is saying that there, I've, I've seen when I've listened to scholars, they're finding those terms. And they're making a case for this is the name. This is where this name fits my uh, my place, my crossing. And uh, in the film, we show I think seven different locations that potential were there. Uh, three up in Egypt, and then there's uh, the crossings. There's four. One's at the tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the Straits of Tehran. The other one's at Nuweiba Beach, which is in the center of the Gulf of Aqaba. Then there's a uh, one at the tip of of Aqaba. Uh, which is Sir Colin Humphreys from Cambridge, and he thinks that. And then there's one a little bit further north in the body of bodies of water that show up um, 
I'm not sure how far it is, but let's say eight to 10 miles north where there's water that, that is up in that area uh, and that there's a connection to that with these, these mines. And so each one of those scholars builds their case for why they think these biblical terms fit. Okay. And, uh, well, I guess the takeaway is that um, the Bible can absolutely be true and be accurate in the story. And the fact that we don't know the locations exactly doesn't mean that uh, they weren't exact locations and the story is very, very specifically uh, true. Um, this leads us to our last question, Tim, about Mount Horeb. There's um, a famous Mount Sinai with a monastery there, um, but there's other locations, depending on the story and the route, will depend on where Mount Sinai is. So what do you have to say about that? That's correct. And, you know, one of the things is that there are geographical indicators uh, in the scripture as you look at it. And what I'm seeing is plausibility is that we're trying to look at, because it's something that happened 3,500 years ago. And I've talked to some scholars who say, well, how would you find this? But you can look at geographical uh, indicators. And the next film, Journey to Mount Sinai, is what we're working on now. And Journey to Mount Sinai is going to pick us up what it, uh, from the crossing. So this is what happens, is if you uh, cross the Gulf of Aqaba, you are now in... Saudi Arabia, and in the northwest part of that is the ancient land of Midian. And for me, that was very compelling because I believe that Moses, uh, as we know, he fled from Egypt after he killed an Egyptian, and he fled and he stayed with Jethro, and he lived in the land of Midian for 40 years. And this is where he had this encounter with God at the burning bush and said, bring these people back to me at this mountain. So what's happening is that that there are a number of people that like that area and they believe that Yamsuf is the Gulf of Aqaba. There are other people that say, no, we, he, they crossed one of these seas. And if they crossed one of these, these seas up near Egypt, they could still end up in the land of Midian. And some people can send them across the Sinai to other mountains, such as Harkarkum, which is in the southern Nekev mountain. Uh, Southern Negev, it's a it's an area that uh, my wife and I were able to go there. And there's other things that they say match the biblical text. And then others take them down into the Sinai Peninsula, and there's a connection where they're looking at that. So Journey to Mount Sinai is our next film. But once again, if you cross, depending on what sea you cross, it does indicate that you're heading that the mountain has to be on the other side of that. That's most likely what we're saying, mm -hmm. which makes sense. It's, it's very practical. And uh, I think that there are some very compelling pieces of evidence that, uh, that have been brought forward that we're going to be showing in the coming up films that we've got. In fact, we're going to make two of them. One's called Journey to Mount Sinai, and the second one is Mountain of God. And Mountain of God really is an exciting film, too, probably too early to talk about it, but it's really about what's happening in our nation right now and happening in the world. It's, is there a God and did he give these commands and um, all the things that are established that this is where Israel, God marries Israel at this mountain. They make a covenant with him. And if we look at the covenants that have been made through time, I think covenants are very, very important. And uh, I'm excited about these next two films because they're gonna continue to help give us deeper understanding 
into what happened that changed the world uh, with this covenant. So um, this is exciting stuff, exciting materials, and there's physical evidence that we're going to look at that is very, very, uh, uh, you know, that it matches the biblical account. Well, we can't wait till you have your next two films. We'll certainly have you back then to discuss them. And I know that our short time here together today is just a real introduction to uh, what you lay out in just beautiful detail uh, in your documentary, Patterns of Evidence, The Red Sea, Part 1 and Part 2. So we link in our show notes to today's show how you can order that documentary as well as his first one, Patterns of Evidence on the Exodus. I really recommend you get uh, both, or I should say all three, all three parts and uh, really dig deeper. And for me, the takeaway is that don't let the skeptics tell you that the Bible is not true, that there's no evidence to it. Just because we cannot tell you exactly these place names and the wilderness wanderings and the Red Sea crossing, there are so many possibilities of places that line up with the text. And so uh, be encouraged and uh, stick with us on the rest of our our time together and going deeper. And we're going to have Tim back next week or in a few weeks, actually. And we're going to discuss the um, evidence of the conquest of the land of Israel. So uh, we look forward to having everyone back with us then. And Tim, thank you so much. We look forward to having you back with us next time. And until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.